Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate cooking. After a long day of writing, editing, recording, like today, the last thing I want to do is spend another hour making a delicious meal. Blue Apron has made it so much easier to create delicious meals easily at home without a lot of time or effort. I don't know about you, but that sounds amazing. So if you've been wanting to try Blue Apron but haven't taken the plunge, now's your chance to check out the service with a deep discount. I'm running a promotion with them right now where you can get $30 off your first order, so all you have to do is click the link in the show notes and look forward to making some amazing meals at home. So welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. I've got something a little different for you guys tonight. It will be my second history episode ever. I previously covered the 1964 earthquake which I'll either be redoing entirely or at least re-releasing in the future. History is one of my favorite subjects to read about. It was one of my college majors and there are so many interesting Alaskan historical stories that don't really fit into the true crime category, but they're so interesting that I will definitely be covering many of them in the future starting today. So just a few bits of the usual business at the top of the show before we get into the story. I now have a Patreon up with a couple of bonus episodes already available, as well as some other perks for those who sign up. If you're interested in supporting the show, check out my Patreon. For as low as just a couple bucks a month, you get access to all digital content as well as some other goodies. I also just started a Threadless with a variety of designs available on a pretty decent selection of apparel items. Everything is at a big discount right now, and patrons will always have the option of buying anything they like there at the base price. So thank you so much for the support. It's incredible, and it just means everything to me right now. This is currently my job, and I'm trying to hustle and make it work. As I announced previously, I'm now part of the Age of Radio podcast network, located at ageofradio.org. There are several amazing podcasts on the network, so check it out if you're on the hunt for some new podcasts to listen to. I've also started writing a series on the 27 Club for the Dark and Stormy podcast. The 27 Club is a group of amazing musicians that all died at that young age, so it's an entirely different sort of research I've been doing, and it's been absolutely fascinating. So if you like music, music history, that sort of thing, give it a listen. And lastly, I want to give some love back to some of the other podcasters and podcasts that I love. So every week I'm going to share a new podcast with you guys. 
either through their promotion or me just promoting it myself. So if you'd like to do a promo swap with me and have yours featured at the top of this show, just drop me an email with your promo attached. So this week I've got a promo from my long-term pod buddy, Jim, who is one of the co-hosts of the Forgotten News podcast. Hello everyone, my name is Jim. Hi, my name is Kit Karen. And we host the Forgotten News podcast. Jim, I know we're in the middle of recording the promo for our podcast, but a thought just occurred to me. Okay. People praise the future because it is blank and featureless. They are afraid of the past because it is full of real and living things. Kit, hey, that is absolutely true for most people, but not for us. On our podcast, we tell true stories from before you were born. Stories that made headlines maybe for a day or a week, then disappeared just as suddenly. It might be a true crime story or an unsolved mystery. It might be a strange or spooky story. It might even be a funny story. (laughs) And if you want to hear some exciting stories about Franklin Roosevelt, Susan B. Anthony, or Alexander Hamilton, well, I'm sorry, you'll need to find a different podcast. Yes, indeed. Because our show tells the stories of the footnote people from history. And sometimes the people who didn't even make it into the footnotes. If you are someone who would like to hear lost but true stories from long ago, then you should definitely listen to the Forgotten News podcast. Yep. So thank you guys. That was an oddly haunting promo. But if you like history, you should definitely give their show a listen. So now that I'm done droning on at the top of the show, I will now drone on about something entirely different. Today's historical story that I'm covering is not one I had heard of before until I recently stumbled across a relatively new book about it. And I was instantly absorbed and I found the story to be quite fascinating and also very haunting. So today's episode is the story of the Wilcox Expedition. Humans have been climbing mountains for either fun or necessity for hundreds of years, but it wasn't really until the 1800s when the practice really started to take off as a sport. Mountains became yet another place for people to explore, and the tallest mountains were seen as challenges to be conquered, and certainly before the other guy got there first. Soon, there came the idea of the Seven Summits, as in the tallest mountain on each continent, and many devoted their lives to conquering all seven. However, there are actually different ways of truly measuring the size of a mountain. The Seven Summits are all chosen due to being the highest in elevation above sea level, even if, in the case of Mount Everest, the base of the mountain is actually around 17,000 feet above sea level. There's also the measurement from the base of the mountain to the peak, in which case the tallest mountain in the world would actually be Mauna Kea on the Big Island of Hawaii, though the base of the mountain is actually at the bottom of the ocean, so not really. But if you're ranking the height of a mountain whose base is above sea level, the number one would be Denali in Alaska, 
Denali is 18,000 feet above its base, while Everest is only 12,000 feet above its base. So while Everest may be the more difficult climb due to the high altitude, Denali is actually a longer climb in distance. The word Denali comes from the language of the Athabascan people that lived in the area for centuries. It means high one. And while the mountain was renamed Mount McKinley after President McKinley was assassinated, it was finally given back its rightful native name in 2015 after several decades of court battles. The mountain is absurdly large, not just tall. It's 144 square miles. On a good day, you can actually see it clearly from Anchorage, even though it's about 150 miles north of us. I've been there and it's quite majestic, and it's really no wonder that it's been the stuff of legends for a long time. Many thought that the mountain could not be conquered for a long time, but that was proven wrong in 1913 by a 20-year-old determined Athabascan man named Walter Harper, the first man to reach the summit. After that, more climbers began to take on the challenge, and by the year that our story takes place, 1967, around 200 people had reached the summit and four had died in the process. The 1967 climbing season was going to more than double the number of Denali fatalities. The 60s era of climbing was quite a bit different than it is now. Climbers back then didn't have nearly as many safety nets as they do now. Gear was heavier and not nearly as technologically advanced as now. And for a lot of climbers, they attempted to summit high mountains to challenge themselves as well as enjoy an adventure. It was just as much or more about the journey than the summit. Many old climbers are disappointed by the tendency of modern climbers to have the summit be their main goal, to check that peak off the list and move on. Whether or not that's accurate, it's worth thinking about the fact that it's probably easier and more likely as a modern climber to be somewhat certain that you can reach a given summit. It seems as though there were a lot more issues back then that might prevent one from making it to the top. So in a way, they sort of had to enjoy the journey because there wasn't the certainty that they were likely to hit the summit. Over the years, Denali has maintained about a 50% success rate for successfully reaching the summit. One of the people that really became interested in reaching the summit in 1967 was a young man named Joe Wilcox. He was a 24-year-old grad student at Brigham Young University. He had spent the summer of 66 working for the Forest Service in Alaska, and while there, he came up with the idea of getting a group together to do a Denali climb. He had a pretty good amount of experience, and like many young men before him, the challenge of the Great White Peak called to him. Wilcox wasn't the best choice for the leader of an expedition, a role which required someone with the ability to deal with possible personality conflicts and someone with the knowledge and emotional strength to make the tough decisions for the group. He didn't really have those qualities, but what he did have was drive and determination to climb Denali. And as might be indicated by his chosen major of mathematics, 
He was a details-oriented person, and he dove into planning the minutiae of the expedition. He created a newsletter to be sent to several prospective climbers all over the U.S. to give them information on the trip costs, dates, etc. The plan was for the group members to convene in Washington in early summer where they could get to know each other and do some practice runs on Mount Rainier. Wilcox had begun the planning and organizing stage several months in advance in order to get a decent group together and he had to get the required permission from the park employees to do the climb. Two of the first people to sign on were Mark McLaughlin, age 24, from Eugene, Oregon, and Jerry Clark, 31, also from Eugene. Wilcox had been connected with Clark through a mutual friend, and Clark would end up rounding many of the rest of the group. As the oldest, Clark also had the most experience of the entire group, by far. He had been actively involved in mountaineering for over a decade and had also spent time in Antarctica where he'd been a climbing safety instructor. Other members were Steve Taylor, a 23-year-old recent college graduate, Angel Schiff, a 30-year-old engineering sciences professor, Hank James, a 25-year-old teacher, Dennis Lucturand, a 23-year-old grad student, Walt Taylor, a 24-year-old med school student, and John Russell, a 23-year-old logger. While most of the guys were in school or already graduated with STEM degrees, Russell was described as more of a beatnik, possibly a burgeoning hippie. When Wilcox applied for the climbing permit, he gave information on each of his team members. The park rangers were a little skeptical since a few of the men did not have a vast amount of climbing experience. They told Wilcox that they had some stipulations for him to have the permission to climb. They said he must make sure that the rope teams would be made up of both strong and weak climbers mixed together. A rope team is a group of climbers connected obviously by a rope to keep from getting lost in bad weather and to help each other if somebody falls. As it was coming very close to the time to meet up in Washington, Wilcox's team was made aware of another group of climbers from Colorado who were planning to do Denali that summer as well. They were a smaller group with a lot more experience, and one of their members had just gotten hurt in a car accident and had to drop out. This caused the group to fall below the required number of four members. Howard Snyder, the 22-year-old leader of the Colorado group, contacted Wilcox and asked if they could join his expedition. Wilcox told him to bring his members to Mount Rainier to meet the rest of the group, and then at that point they could all decide. So Snyder and his remaining team members, 22-year-old Air Force Cadet Paul Schlichter and 30-year-old Army vet Jerry Lewis, gathered their gear and loaded up for the drive from Boulder, Colorado up to Mount Rainier. The park rangers had also specified to the Wilcox expedition that they absolutely had to practice certain aspects of mountaineering before they could even step foot on Denali. They wanted to make sure that every group member knew how to save each other and themselves from different types of emergencies. When the Colorado group finally arrived in town, all 12 guys got together and discussed merging their groups together. They actually wrote up a formal document by Wilcox with specific rules in regards to divvying up their supplies and costs. And by June 13th, they were all headed north with the 12 of them and their vast amounts of gear and supplies broken up between three vehicles. 
They would be driving from Seattle up through British Columbia and on to Denali, a 2,200-mile drive through some of the most beautiful scenery on the planet. I've done the drive a few times, and it's extremely lovely, but definitely starts to feel very isolated once you're past Vancouver. There aren't a huge amount of towns along the way, but there are just so many bears and a lot of other wildlife to be seen. And in 1967, only the first 800 miles to Alaska was paved. The rest was a crappy dirt road. While on the way up, Wilcox's car broke down about 500 miles shy of Denali. And the car turned out to be basically shot, so he abandoned it, and nine of them had to cram into Hank Jane's van for the rest of their drive. The group made it to Denali and met up at the park and had their equipment checked over by a park ranger. They also gave the park rangers a basic idea of their climbing schedule. They would be communicating with the ranger station by CB radio, so they wanted to give them a decent idea of when to expect them to check in so that someone would have a basic idea of where they were on the mountain. They were planning to take a route that went over the dangerous Muldrow Glacier, primarily due to the costs associated with accessing the easier route. The glacier had deep crevasses all over it, some of which were hard to spot, which led to this being an especially treacherous route. Th three of the previous climbers who had died on Denali had done so on this very glacier. The climb started pretty poorly, with tensions between the original group and the Colorado group being pretty high. They were having their supplies brought in on pack horses to the base camp. Steve Taylor came in separately with two of the Coloradoans because the packhorse crew wasn't able to take all of their supplies to base camp at the same time. The Coloradoans that he was hiking with ended up leaving him behind to hike on his own for hours. He was slower and actually started the trip off sick and was just super nervous about the climb. Dennis Lukterhan had almost backed out at the last minute, but it was too late now and they were on their way. As it got underway, John Russell would actually prove to be the most abrasive amongst the group. He seemed to have a hard time getting along with any of them, and I have a feeling he was just a much different kind of person than the rest of them. He also complained that they were carrying too much gear. They ended up getting rid of their snow saws and all of their shovel handles but one. This would turn out to be a tragic mistake. As they began crossing the 32-mile-long Muldrow Glacier, a massive avalanche came down across much of it, but luckily they were far enough away that it didn't affect them. Then as they were crossing the glacier, Jerry Lewis actually fell into a deep crevasse, but the quick thinking of Steve Taylor, who was roped up behind him, saved his life, and they were able to pull him out. So as they were climbing the mountain, they had a set routine. I personally am not a mountaineer, so I've never done anything like this, but some of you may be familiar with it. So one group of guys with smaller loads of supplies would break the trail on the way up to the next camp, and they'd leave markers along the route so the others could follow. The next group would be fully loaded, and they would work to bring their gear up, leave it cached, and then camp at a lower elevation to slowly adjust to the altitude. So by the time they'd reached the top using this routine, they would have actually traveled two to three times that distance. It actually rained for the first few days of the trip, and it was kind of horrible. 
But as they continued up the glacier, camping at various points, it began snowing, which made the trek even more dangerous. When heavy snow fell, the snow bridge covering up crevasse openings could be very hard to distinguish on the landscape. A few feet of snow fell, which also contributed to avalanche danger. So the groups took to climbing at night without the sun directly beating down on them and the snow, which lowered the likelihood of an avalanche. By July 13th, they were all camped up at 15,000 feet. As they were getting higher and higher, John Russell began experiencing altitude sickness, which had actually plagued him since he began climbing. But he refused to show any sort of weakness, so he began to power through the illness. He had actually tried to get over the sickness many times in his life, but to no avail. Trying to climb Denali was indicative of his stubborn nature and also refusal to back down from a challenge. It also must have been especially frustrating in this experience as he was actually one of the strongest climbers among them, but just had this stupid affliction that affected him. Ansel Schiff was experiencing terrible heartburn and really just having a hard time eating enough to keep his energy up. He was also surreptitiously carrying smaller loads than the others, many of whom were fine carrying parts of his weight since he obviously seemed very ill. In his case, it seems likely that he wasn't up to it, but probably didn't want to turn back alone. The physical expenditure of the climb cannot be understated. They would be burning 5,000 or more calories a day and needed to eat enough to keep their bodies fueled. It got harder the higher they went. They slogged through extremely deep snow to break the trail, and as they ascended to higher altitudes, many of them were starting to feel the effects. The higher the altitude, the lower the air pressure, which causes there to be a smaller percentage of effective oxygen. At sea level, the percent of effective oxygen is 20.9, and at 15,000, it's 11.8. At the top of the mountain, there would only be around 9.7% of effective oxygen. Humans are obviously set to function at specific levels, though one can acclimatize to higher altitudes. It takes time. Otherwise, it can cause major health problems, including death. Lack of proper acclimatization can lead to acute mountain sickness, also known as altitude sickness. This can lead to fatigue, exhaustion, insomnia, nausea, shortness of breath, fast heart rate, respiratory distress syndrome. And if the sickness becomes severe, it can lead to cerebral and pulmonary edema, which is swelling of the brain and lungs and confusion, lack of balance, and if it gets really bad, it can cause a coma or death. Symptoms can actually begin to show up around 8,000 feet, and they tend to get pretty bad around 12,000. One of the main treatments is to return to a lower altitude as quick as possible, which is hard to do if you're still thousands of feet below the summit that you've spent a lot of time and money to get to. People that live their whole lives in higher altitude locations like Tibetans and Nepalese can function just fine in these conditions, but those who have lived much of their life near sea level may never truly be able to adapt to those elevations. This is actually why Everest is so dangerous and why climbers tend to bring supplemental oxygen tanks. By the time they reach the 20,000 foot altitude, they enter the quote, death zone, a place where lack of extra oxygen can 
quickly lead to your demise. At this level, effective oxygen is only 7.8%. A scientific study on Everest fatalities found that a large majority of deaths on the mountain occurred in the death zone and involved symptoms of altitude sickness, leading to accidental deaths from falls and other accidents. Tellingly, Sherpas, the natives who reside in the Himalayas, had a lower fatality rate than foreign climbers. So altitude sickness is nothing to joke about. It can also leave its sufferers with lifelong effects, even if they do quickly get off the mountain. The Wilcox expedition were young and may not have truly understood the risk of altitude sickness, or perhaps hubris led them to underestimate its effects. By 15,000 feet, Russell, Schiff, Wilcox, Lewis, and Clark were all experiencing symptoms of the sickness, but with the summit just 5,000 feet higher, none were ready to turn back. They came up with a plan to ascend to the summit quickly so that they could get to lower altitudes faster. The idea being that the longer they were on the mountain, the worse the symptoms would get. So it was decided that Steve, John, and Anshul would rest a day at 15,000 feet to hopefully get some energy back for a summit attempt, and Walt decided to stay with them as well. The other eight planned to head up to high camp at 18,000 and try for the summit on July 15th. They had been getting weather updates from the rangers, but they only had a few days in advance. It was supposed to be clear for a couple more days, so those of them that were the stronger climbers and weren't sick wanted to squeeze through that weather window, try to make the summit. The other four would then plan to join them at high camp and try for the summit the next day, if the weather held out. They planned to get to the top and back down to 15K within just a few days, so they made sure to only pack necessary items and only the amount of food they would need during that time period. They cached the rest of their stuff at 15K. On the morning of the 14th, as eight of them were getting ready to move, a somewhat minor incident nearly ruined their plans. So far throughout the trip, they'd had a few minor fires in the cook tent, but on July 14th, they experienced their worst one yet. Perhaps due to their impaired judgment at that altitude, they weren't being as careful uh, cooking on the stoves as they should have been. Two stoves were going at once and fumes from one leaked out and were ignited by the other stove. In a flash, the entire cook tent was completely incinerated. Somehow no one was injured though, but the tent was ruined. Walt's jacket and John's sleeping bag were also completely destroyed, but luckily they all had enough extra gear to go around. This near disaster dampened the mood of the men that were about to angle for the summit. The eight men made it up to high camp at 18,000 and settled in for a nervous night of sleep, exacerbated by the wind attacking them and their exposed camp. Despite the fact that he seemed to be experiencing beginning altitude sickness, Hukterhan had pushed on with them as planned. The call of the peak was too great. The morning of July 15th dawned with promise. Though it had become snowy, cloudy, and windy overnight, much of it began to fade away as the men arose and began to psych themselves up for the big push. The rangers had been unable to provide any further weather info for the next few days, so the summit group knew that they had to go while the weather looked good. At the last minute, 
Denny decided he was in no shape to be heading for the summit that day. Jerry Clark, Walt, and Mark decided they would stay at high camp with him and wait for the summit the following day with the other four members of their party. A capable and self-assured leader at this point may have prompted everyone to try for the summit while the weather was holding, but it's likely that no one wanted to either force Denny to climb while sick or to wait back at camp sick alone while the others went. Wilcox would end up taking a lot of blame for lack of critical thinking for many decisions he made throughout the trip. But the truth is, there were others there that had as much or more experience than him that easily could have stepped up to the role and made a decision, but didn't. Wilcox would certainly end up blaming himself for the decisions he may or may not have made on the trip. But sometimes catastrophic results occur from seemingly inconsequential decisions and minute factors, and it's often no one person's fault. One such factor was that as they were headed up to the summit that day, they realized they didn't have enough markers to properly show the route they were taking to the summit. The rest of the markers were down at 15,000 feet. But as their climb got underway, they saw markers left behind by another expedition, so they decided to just follow those and not place any of their own. Snyder would later claim that the route had not been properly marked for the group, but at the time did nothing to rectify the situation. Their minds were likely focused elsewhere on the last leg of this very long journey. They actually reached the top relatively easily and were able to spend over an hour up there taking photos and talking by radio to the park rangers. It was a rare bluebird day and they had an extraordinary view. After basking their accomplishment for a decent period of time, they decided it was time to go back. It was getting to be cloudy and windy again and was getting towards evening. Everyone was exhausted and buckled down for the trek back down to high camp. They got down there and met up with the four that were coming up from 15K. Steve Taylor and John Russell were both very sick and Angel wasn't doing much better. Everyone camped together at high camp that night. The next day gave very early warnings that no one would be going anywhere that day. The wind began to pick up, blowing snow everywhere and making visibility very poor. But by the 17th, the weather was looking much better. And despite again having no weather info, the day seemed to have potential for a summit attempt. The first summit group prepared to part ways and head back down to 15K. However, they knew that John, Anshul, and Steve were all quite ill, and they wondered if any of them would actually be up for the climb. If not, laying around at that high altitude would not help at all. They urged the sick men to think about coming back down with them. As soon as he heard the offer, Anshul was on board. He was too sick to care about the summit and was ready to get off the damn mountain. A last minute decision on which everything hinged. They tried to urge Steve to also come down with them, but he refused even though he was obviously much too sick to go up the mountain. The unofficial leader of those who were remaining at high camp was Jerry Clark. The night before, he had all but decided to just head back down in the morning and forgetting the summit, but it was a milder day 
and he and the other six had decided they would stay up there a while watching the weather and would make an angle for the summit if it seemed right. As Wilcox and Clark parted ways, Joe urged him to please not take any unnecessary chances. The second summit group ended up hanging out for quite a while to make sure the weather seemed right before they took any chances. It would be an eight to 10 hour trek round trip, so they only packed the bare essentials necessary and some extra food. At the very last minute, Steve decided he was too sick to make the attempt and chose to stay alone at high camp and get some rest. The groups did not have direct CB communication with each other, but they could rely on the rangers to relay messages to each other. At 8.30 p.m., Jerry Clark radioed the rangers to tell them they were about an hour from the summit. An hour later, he called back to say that they were actually lost near the summit. They had completely lost track of the markers showing the route and subsequently had absolutely no idea where they were and visibility was almost non-existent. The next morning, they radioed again to say that they had been actually stuck up there all night, just near the summit, but they'd managed to make it to the summit now and were planning to descend shortly. Clark revealed that he was up top with four other guys. Russell was no longer with them. Clark mentioned that Steve Taylor had stayed back at high camp, but did not mention Russell at all. And it's never become known exactly what happened to him. Though Wilcox speculated that he turned back from the others on the ascent and was heading back to high camp due to sickness. Clark signed off saying they were going to head down shortly and would try to radio back around 8 p.m., but there wasn't going to be any more radio contact. The Wilcox group was now split up into three to four locations on the mountain. There were also a few other expeditions at various stages of their climb that day, including one at high camp on the western side of the mountain, and a group that was made up of actually several members of the Mountaineering Club of Alaska that were camped at around 12,000 feet that day. Their presence on the mountain that day would prove to be fortuitous, and their altitude that day was a pure stroke of luck. Their leader had accidentally led them astray earlier in their ascent, which resulted in a few days of backtracking. It's likely that this error saved their lives, because that day, one of the most ferocious storms ever recorded hit the peak of Denali. The expedition on the western side at 17,000 would later report that they had been caught in winds over 100 miles per hour, which they only escaped by using ice axe to pull themselves along on their stomachs until they could get some cover from the wind. Up over the summit, two weather systems had collided, resulting in wind reaching upwards of 200 to 300 miles per hour. Anyone being caught in the open on the summit was going to be in for a bad time. And this is where the discarded snow saws and shovel pieces from earlier in the ascent come into play. Being stuck in such ferocious wind with no protection, the group would have desperately and quickly needed these items in order to dig snow caves or build small igloos to give themselves cover from the storm. But with only one shovel scoop among the five men at the summit, 
there was no chance they would have been able to dig or build any sort of shelter quickly enough to protect themselves. With extremely cold weather, the kind of wind that could lift a person off the ground, poor visibility and almost no supplies, there was very little hope of survival. The other five men were down at 15,000 feet as the superstorm was growing at the summit. The mountain's mass creates a huge variety of weather depending on where you're at on the mountain. Down at 15,000, winds were around 60 miles per hour at first with heavily falling snow, trapping them in their tents for a few days. And they were growing more worried by the hour as the rangers kept informing them that they still hadn't heard from the other group. Wilcox felt desperate to get back to the top and find his friends. By July 20th, after waiting around for a few days, he could wait no longer. He, Snyder, and Schlichter got on a rope and began making their way upward, trudging through deep powder snow and getting continually battered by wind. Four hours in, they had gone less than a mile and realized they would have to turn back or risk getting lost themselves. That evening, Wilcox radioed the rangers requesting a flyover of the summit and a supply drop for the men up there. Different rescue groups and pilots were contacted, including the Air Force. Unfortunately, there was no plane available that could both withstand the massive wind while performing the maneuvers that would be necessary to spot anyone up at the summit. At the 15,000 camp, the storm continued to ratchet up. And on July 21st, the guys estimated the winds at around 70 to 80 miles per hour. It was the equivalent of a hurricane. Many of the climbers with MCA camped at 12,000 feet were search and rescue. And they knew the guys up top would likely be in trouble and they might be called upon to look for them. At 15,000, they continued to be battered with snow and wind. The tragic turn their trip had taken was slowly creeping up on them. Wilcox desperately wanted to believe in a good outcome, but deep inside he feared the worst. And during this time, Angel revealed that he now believed turning back with Wilcox instead of going to the summit was likely the best decision he had ever made. As they hunkered in their tent, they were also in real fear for their own lives. One tent had already collapsed from snow, and now they were all in the remaining tent and wondering if they could make it down if this tent were to also collapse or be ripped apart by the storm. Three of them were sick. Lewis could not eat and was having a hard time maintaining balance. Anshul was still very sick and Wilcox was definitely showing signs of stress and fatigue and was experiencing extreme numbness and weakness in his hands. Despite all of this, Wilcox would probably have tried to head back to high camp if he'd had another man volunteer to join him, but no one would. A rescue attempt at this juncture was more likely to get the rescuers killed than anything else. By the 23rd, they knew that they had to risk a descent. Lewis needed medical treatment. He could barely walk, and the others supported him as best as they could on the way down. At one point, he fell down and told the others to just go on without him but they ignored it. After a grueling descent of a few thousand feet, they came across the MCA group's camp. They had plenty of supplies and were all in decent shape, 
So, as they saw the men stumbling towards their camp, they rushed over to help them. They had known of the expedition and were incredibly happy to see that some of them had made it. They gave the men plenty of food and drink. Once they were settled in and somewhat restored, Wilcox began imploring the rangers to please find someone to do a flyover of the summit. He was desperate. Five out of six members of the MCA group agreed to do search and rescue as soon as possible. The sixth member, Dr. Grace Homan, was ill and agreed to join the Wilcox group for descent on July 24th. The remaining MCA group members were leader Bill Babcock, Jeff Babcock, Gail Nienhauser, John Ireton, and Chet Hackney. On July 25th, they prepared to ascend. The weather was the best it had been since the storm started a week earlier, and a local famed pilot named Don Sheldon, who was involved in many rescue operations during his flying career, was ready to do a flyover and supply drop. He dropped supplies for the search team, and over the next two days dropped more supplies higher up and did an extensive search of the higher reaches of the mountain, up to around 18,000 feet. He saw nothing. Over the next few days, a few other pilots did searches to no avail. On July 28th, the MCA group was getting closer to the high camp and beginning to see signs of the men. They found Steve Taylor's ice axe laying on the snow below high camp. They also found some items belonging to John Russell below high camp, including a bamboo crevasse pole he had been carrying the whole trip. Chillingly, they found that and a few other supplies located closely to a crevasse with a huge hole in the snow bridge. They considered it likely that someone had fallen in. A while later, they finally made it to the high camp. What greeted them removed any optimism they may have possibly had. One tent was still standing, and nearby was a man's corpse. He appeared to be frozen to death and was discolored and partially covered in snow. The rescuers were haunted by the sight. He was draped in pieces of a tent that had likely been destroyed by the wind. Because of the condition of his body, they couldn't see any identifying features other than his clothing. And his identity was never completely verified, but it came to be assumed that they had found Steve Taylor. The park officials were informed of the grizzly find, and they requested the MCA climbers to do an extensive search of the whole area, but they were exhausted. But they did agree to try for the summit. The next day, the Air Force was summoned to drop supplies to the searchers so they can continue on to the summit. They tried to do a search, but they were in a massive C-130, and they were going much too fast to see anything. The MCA group trudged upward towards the summit, looking around for a sign of anyone. The pilot, Don Sheldon, was searching overhead at the time, and he dropped down a message to the climbers with a rough map and a note indicating he had spotted something colorful. It was located over a steep slope. Two of the men decided to check it out, and one belayed the other on a rope over the edge so he could investigate. They made another haunting discovery, the frozen bodies of two men on the slope. They appeared to have been purposefully striding downward on the slope, 
that no one would choose to take. It was likely they were in a panic and trying to hurriedly get back to high camp. These bodies would later be tentatively identified as Walt Taylor and Dennis Luke Duran based on the descriptions the rescuers gave. They realized at this point they were unlikely to find more bodies and they knew with certainty that there would be no survivors. Weather began to get bad up top again and they spent another day in a snow cave before they began their descent. Down below, the six climbers had split up. The three Colorado men set off on their own, while Wilcox, Schiff, and the MCA climber, Dr. Grace Homan, were moving slower. Once they were back down to a relatively low elevation, Wilcox alone went to the Wonder Lake Ranger Station to have the helicopter sent to get the others. Dr. Homan said that Lewis needed to go to the hospital ASAP as he had terrible frostbite. The route took Wilcox through a couple of deep river crossings, an amazing feat for his current condition, and one that Lewis would probably not have been capable of. A helicopter brought the rest of the group down and Lewis went to the hospital. Wilcox spent much time over the next few days with park officials, telling them details of their climb. Once they were informed of the three bodies and the likelihood that everyone had died, Wilcox and the park superintendent, George Hall, began the horrible task of calling the families of the seven men. The families of Luke Duran, Steve Taylor, and Hank James quickly made their way up to Alaska and to Denali. They all spent a few days at Denali hoping for a miracle or at least for the knowledge that their son's bodies had been definitively found. Park officials attempted to get the MCA group to go back up, but they could go on no longer. When it became apparent that no miracle would occur, the families held a memorial at the visitor center before leaving Alaska. In August, the park decided to sponsor a team to go back up Denali with the purpose of finding the rest of the bodies and burying those that they could. The trip ended up yielding no new answers and the bodies that they had previously found were no longer visible due to heavy snowfall. They found a very small portion of the bamboo crevasse pole that was sticking out of the snow and not much more. The fate and final resting place of the four other climbers would forever remain a mystery their bodies would become part of the mountain to be joined over the next five decades with 40 other lost climbers. Climbers involved in the attempted rescue and park officials kept in touch with the families of the lost men. They assured them that it's likely they had all perished from the elements, which would involve very little suffering or pain. It was a small act of solace. Shortly after the tragedy, there was a big push to close the mountain off to climbers. Superintendent George Hall vehemently refused. He was not a mountaineer, but he knew the passion of the community and he couldn't do that to them. The MCA later gave him honorary membership, a small certificate that he kept until his death just a few years ago. In the last 50 years, many books have been written on this tragedy, including by a few of the survivors. In 1973, Snyder wrote In the Hall of the Mountain King about the experience. 
At the time, he placed a lot of blame on Wilcox, a sentiment which he has come to regret with the passing of years and gaining of wisdom. In the 80s, Wilcox wrote his own memoir of the climb called White Winds. MCA climber Jeff Babcock wrote a memoir about his first ascent of Denali in which he and the MCA group found the three bodies. He was 20 years old at that time, and the event would haunt him forever. A few years ago, a writer and researcher named James Tabor wrote a book about the incident called Forever on the Mountain. In it, he places explicit blame on the park employees for not launching a rescue, with a clear lack of knowledge about the true extent and power of the storm that day. Daryl Miller, who was a longtime ranger at Denali and who had a lot of knowledge of search and rescue on Denali and in Alaska, read the book and was outraged by the conclusions that Tabor drew. He stated that while there were dozens of people ready and wanting to help, there was absolutely nothing they could have been done without risking the lives of potential rescuers. The storm was so gargantuan that he said if it were to occur now, it would likely end with the same outcome. The five survivors of the tragedy went on to live their lives as best as they could. Joe Wilcox spent years battling survivor's guilt. He studied the storm information and anything he could find on the subject, until one day he just realized that the situation had been utterly beyond his control. He has tried to let go of the guilt over the years. He did maintain a love of the outdoors and climbing, and also developed a love of sailing. He now spends a lot of his time on Hawaii's Big Island, teaching astronomy and sailing around on his island packet 350 sailboat. He hopes to sail from Hawaii to Australia someday, and he's already gone to Tahiti and back. Though he's in his 70s, he's still quite fit and active. Snyder lives in Alberta as a museum director. He has remained in good contact with Schlichter over the years. Schlichter was an Air Force cadet at the time of the Denali climb, and he went on to survive the Vietnam War, the memories of which would haunt him much longer than Denali. Snyder and Schlichter reunited in 2010 for the first time since the 70s. They were invited to speak at the Colorado Mountaineers Club annual dinner, and they told their stories of survival. Angel Schiff is not in the public eye and appears to have gone on to be an esteemed engineering professor at Stanford. Schlichter and Snyder have stated that Lewis was greatly affected by the event and prefers not to talk about it. He also stays out of the public eye. At the time of the tragedy, it was the deadliest mountaineering disaster in U.S. history and would remain so for 20 more years until 1986 when nine climbers died on Mount Hood in Oregon but it remains the deadliest accident in Denali history. In 1967, the park superintendent, George, had a five-year-old son named Andy. Andy still has vague memories of that time and meeting Joe Wilcox. A few years ago, after hearing about the Tabor book that placed blame on his late father for the disaster, he knew he had to defend his father's legacy. He did intensive research 
and contacted many people that were involved in the tragedy and the aftermath. This resulted in his first book, Denali's Howl. It is a meticulously researched and crafted narrative of the event. It is likely the most well-rounded coverage of the disaster, with numerous bits of information from many sources, with very little judgment placed. When I stumbled upon this book recently for personal reading, I became so sucked into the story and the characters that I knew I had to cover it. Much of my research for this episode came from this book, as well as countless articles. I highly recommend the book to those of you that love narrative nonfiction and survival stories. I've read it twice now, and likely will read it again in the future. This story left me more haunted than possibly any of the horrific true crime cases I've covered. It's hard to explain why, but I think that there are a few intersecting reasons. When someone loses a loved one with no idea of their final moments or where their final resting place is, it's got to be one of the worst things possible on the spectrum of human experience. And to know the basic location where their remains might be, with absolutely no ability to find them and see their precious child one last time, must be excruciating. And there's also just something so terrifying about the unstoppable force of nature. There's no bargaining, no reason, and when it turns destructive, it can be incredibly unpredictable, and surviving, as seen in this story, is often pure luck and timing. I've been haunted about the fate of these young men from so long ago. Men who would be in their 70s and 80s now if they had survived. There's no telling what brilliant lives they may have led. There was Jerry Clark, the adventurous and highly intelligent electrical engineer who loved exploring just as much as he loved fiddling with electronics. Steve Taylor, the 23-year-old who had just graduated with a degree in physics. Despite his relative lack of experience, he had boldly taken on the challenge of Denali. He had been one of the first ones to sign on to the expedition. Mark McLaughlin, the 24-year-old climber, skier, and extreme adventurer. Hank Janes, the 25-year-old teacher who chose to teach in the inner city and try to make some child's lives better. Dennis Luchterend, the lanky 23-year-old geology grad student with many summits under his belt. Dennis, who nearly backed out of the trip before even reaching Alaska, but ultimately accepted the challenge. Walt Taylor, the incredibly intelligent 24-year-old who was both in med school and pursuing a master's in philosophy, who in his free time from his hectic life, decided to climb the tallest mountain in North America. John Russell, the 23-year-old irreverent personality, the one with the bushy beard among the clean-cut group, the beatnik hippie and traveler who insisted on carrying a heavy bamboo crevasse pole to the summit so he could plant it like a flag. I hope that these men can all be remembered for the adventurous spirits that they were. They lived more in their short time on Earth than most do in 80 years. And one small bit of solace among the sadness is that they died doing something that they loved, and before they did, completed one of the hardest climbs out there. And that's not nothing. Thank you for listening to this episode. I know it was a totally different type of story, but 
I hope that it touched you as much as it touched me. And I really hope that you check out Andy Hall's book, Denali's Howl. It's an incredible read. Until next time, good night and good luck.